Tonight's reading is from Judges 2, 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of, an inher- of his inheritance in timrath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. Simon and Garfunkel. How many of you have at least heard of Simon and Garfunkel? All right. Your grandparents probably listen to this music. I used to listen to that album when I was a little kid. I used to listen to that album when I was a little kid. My parents owned that album. That album came out in 1968. Uh, the song is Mrs. Robinson. It was number one in 1968 in June for three weeks running. And it was uh, the title track of a movie that came out that same year starring a very young upcoming Hollywood star by the name of Dustin Hoffman. And the movie was The Graduate. The graduate. Now, the last line, the last lyric in the verse, I'm not going to sing it to you. I'll read it to you. Jeff's disappointed. Do you want me to sing it? No, I'm not going to sing it. It's, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Woo, woo, woo. Now, that's probably lost on most of you because probably many of you don't know who Joe DiMaggio is. So you have to know a little bit about, it's kind of like when you tell a joke and you have to explain the joke. It's not funny anymore. Well, I have to explain the lyric because I'm not preaching to 55-year-olds like myself. Here's the deal. Joe DiMaggio is a legendary baseball player that played for the New York Yankees in the late 30s and the 40s. He is an icon of the sport. So, follow the lyric. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. What's that you say, Mrs. Robinson? Margaret Robinson, that Jolton Joe has left and gone away? Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. And then some guitar riffs and that, and the song just trails off. It's funny, I saw an interview that Paul Simon did probably 20, 30 years later. And he said after he wrote that song, Joe DiMaggio, when that song came out in 68, was upset because he was still alive and he was selling Mr. Coffee makers. Uh, None of you remember that. Maybe some of you used to, Mr. Coffee, drip, automatic drip coffee. So he had gone from baseball and representing Mr. Coffee and he was upset. What do you mean? Where's Joe DiMaggio? I'm right here. I'm right here. Paul Simon laughed and he says, Joe didn't understand that he was a metaphor. Joe didn't understand that he was a metaphor for a time when our nation was innocent. And the, the lyric, the lyric is identifying that during 1960s, and specifically 1968, in the the height of the Vietnam War, political turmoil, uh, protests on campuses, just the civil rights movement, it, it symbolized the fact that there was a time in America's past when nostalgically you could look back and you go, remember the time when Joe DiMaggio, you know, right was wrong, the Nazis were evil, America was good, we knew why we were fighting in World War II, And there was just a sense of, it doesn't mean that everything was right then, but there was a sense of innocence. And and Paul Simon and and in this song, Mrs. Robinson, they're looking at the loss of innocence. 
Now, I was one when Paul Simon declared that our nation lost its innocence. If we lost our innocence in 1968, we've lost our collective minds in 2023. Francis Schaeffer, a theologian and a philosopher, said in the mid-70s, and he was an old man by then, he, was kind of, he kind of had a prophetic voice about just the way the culture is. He, he said of the 1970s, the culture in the 1970s, we have our feet firmly planted in midair. Now, that was quite some time ago. The book of Judges parallels the collective losing of a people's mind. It's, it's so, so many years ago. It starts at about 1400 BC and it covers about 400 years. The only thing that's really technically different between our time and theirs is the technology and the political structure. In those days, Israel had no king. Well, we don't have a king either, but that's not what that verse is about. The verse is not about a monarchy. The verse is about anarchy. The verse is about how people determine what is right and wrong or if there is even right or wrong. So what we're going to do as we look at this series, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Three things from Judges. Now these are the three points that we're gonna look at today. But these three points, are you're gonna see them cyclically throughout the entire book. So this is part of the theme of what, what Judges is going to cover. So first of all, first of all, our problem in Judges, our problem in 2023 in Western civilization is idolatry. Period, end of statement. And I, I aim to show you why this is true and you'll see this as we go through. It's, it was their problem then, it's still our problem today. Second point. Most solutions, the solutions that are offered in Judges, the, what the people think they need to fix the problem doesn't really fix the problem. That was true then, that's true today. Now, those first two points are explicitly in the text. Every time we open the book of Judges, you're gonna see those two points just come out at you. The third point doesn't come out at you, it's, it's, it just leaves you wanting. I, I, I was talking with... a. Uh, an older gentleman who's been a pastor for 40 years and a mentor of mine, Ed Bateman, he's pushing 90 years old. And he asked me, Brooks, you ready to preach judges? And I said, no, but I will be. And he goes, that's the most depressing book in the Bible besides Ecclesiastes. And I said, and that's why I'm preaching it. My goal, our goal is to thoroughly demoralize every single one of you that you can find any hope in anyone other than the king of kings. That is my unapologetic goal, is to make you completely hopeless that there is a solution to our cultural problems except through the power of the king of kings who's brought a kingdom. Which then, hold your breath, we'll get to it, Mark comes in the fall. And that's when we look at the king and the kingdom. That will be 
not depressing, hopefully it will be very, very encouraging. But that's, that's where we're headed. So please open your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Judges, and let's actually start to see what the text has to say. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Man, this is, truthfully, this is a depressing text, and it's just, it is what it is, Lord. That's our, that's our context. It was their context. It's, uh, it's evident that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And uh, Lord, we're reaping the whirlwind. And so we pray that you would use this text to encourage our hearts, even though it will be depressing, through the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Help me to preach and teach in such a way that the text is clear and, and I preach it with humility and grace and, clear, and clearness. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would make Christ exalted tonight and meet people where uh, we are at today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's take a look. First of all, the problem. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So if you were here last week at the end of the Living Stone series, you'll remember that uh, uh, Pastor, Pastor Josh preached on Joshua, and it, he's 110, and he's, he's commissioning them, okay, you've taken the land. Choose this day who you will serve. If it seems hard for you to serve the Lord, then don't serve the Lord. Serve the Baals. Serve the Ashtor. Serve the other gods. As for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. Okay? So picks up here in Judges that... The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. They took that seriously. They heeded his words. They said, yes, we will not serve the gods of, our, of the surrounding nations. We will serve Yahweh. We will see, serve the Lord. And they did. And they did. They served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So they all had passed. They had all gone to be with the Lord. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This doesn't mean that they did not have a cognitive memory of what their parents and their grandparents told them about God. That's, that's not what that means. It doesn't mean that they were unaware. It means that their parents' God weren't their God. Or that they, they didn't have a relationship with him. They didn't serve him as, their, as the generation before did with their whole hearts. They served Yahweh amongst other gods. So, so they're, they're drifting away. They're drifting away. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. Now we're gonna cover the, the identity of some of these neighboring gods a little bit more in detail in the future as we go through the series. But they served the Baals. That's one of the local uh, regional deities. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after, they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and they bowed down to them. So, okay, here's the problem. Here, we're right out of the gates. We see the problem is idolatry. The problem is idolatry. Now, I know that in our generation, uh, I know that in our generation, we don't typically think of ourselves as idolaters. Or when we look at the problems in the world, we don't typically say, well, the problem is idolatry because we look at the way idolatry was practiced then 
and truthfully, the way it's practiced in some parts of the world today. And we say, well, we don't do that. So therefore, we don't do idolatry. Okay, well, you have to understand what worship is before you can understand what idolatry is. God says to his people, they come to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses gets the Ten Commandments and he, and he gives them to, to the people. And he says, uh, here's what God says. I am the Lord your God. I delivered you out of Egypt with an outstretched arm, with a mighty hand. And, and I am your God and you are my people. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, when he says the word before, it can be translated before, beside, in the near vicinity. It doesn't necessarily mean in front of. Here's what he's saying. You shall have no other gods before me, beside me, underneath me, behind me, above me, below me. I, I'm it. I demand exclusive allegiance, exclusive worship. You see, worship, the word worship, it, it means to ascribe ultimate value to something. So when we worship something, we are ascribing ultimate value to it. God is saying, you shall ascribe ultimate value to me and to me alone. And to me alone. He goes on to, 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 to then explain a little bit more. Not only shall you not have any gods before me, you shall not make any graven image. You shall not make a cast image. Fashion it with your hands. Anything that represents an object of ultimate value. Anything in heaven above or on earth below. No idols. No, this is all about worship. This is all about worship. We worship whatever we ascribe ultimate worth to. Now, the gods of, the, of their culture, Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech, they all have different names. They're, they're local deities. We don't, that's why we're like, I don't, I don't get it. Idolatry, idolatry. So we have to understand that what, this is Becky Pippard in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, speaking of idolatry. She says, whatever controls us is really our God. Okay, so whatever we value as ultimate, that's what we ascribe ultimate worth. That's what drives us. That's what motivates us. That's what directs our steps. And it's what we sacrifice to because we expect to receive something good from it, whatever it is. So Pippert says, whatever controls us is really our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people that he or she wants to please. We don't control ourselves. We don't control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our life. We're, whatever, everybody is worshiping all the time. Some of you are like, well, I'm not, I'm not a worshiper. I'm an atheist. I'm just here because I have a girlfriend and I want to try to impress her. I don't really want to be here. I don't believe anything that you people believe. That's fine, but you are still a passionate worshiper of something. I don't know what it is, but something you ascribe ultimate worth to and you're willing to give your life to that. You're willing to make sacrifices for that in the hopes that that, whatever that is, is going to pay dividends and make your life meaningful. You see, that's, that's what worship is. And Joshua says, choose this day who you will serve us. For me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. We're gonna sacrifice the Lord because we trust the Lord's promises that he is going to bless us. So we are, we are ascribing worth to him and we're, we're banking, I'm banking that he's gonna keep his word. So the Lord is the Lord of his life. 
But he also says, but if that's too burdensome, you choose whatever God you want. Just understand there's consequences for that. That was last week's messages. So here we are. Here we are. Let's take a look. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into their hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Wherever they, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible, in terrible distress. Okay, a couple things. They were first of all given over they were given over to their enemies. That's how, that's how the author of the book of Judges explains how this process worked. God gave them over to their enemies. Paul describes it this way in the book of Romans, chapter one. He said, although, knew they, although they knew the truth about God because of God's uh, immutable power, his, his power and his majesty through what has been created, they suppressed the truth because of their wickedness and they worshiped and served created things. And so God gave them over to their sin. There's a giving over process. When, whenever we worship that, which is, we ascribe ultimate worth to something which is not God, God basically, here's, here's what, this, isn't, this is not in the Bible, but I think I can demonstrate throughout the scripture that God basically says, fine, you do you. Yeah, just you do you, you're, you're gonna do you. So I'm gonna give you over to the you doing you. That's what he does. You do you, worship Baal, worship Atoroth, give yourself to money, give yourself to sex, give yourself to food, give yourself to, to acceptance, give yourself to, to power, whatever, whatever it is you think you need and you won't follow me, you just go do you and he gives people over to their idolatry. Now that leads, that leads to oppression. It leads to injustice. It leads to suffering on multiple levels, then and now, then and now. Idols always under-deliver. They make promises. I mean, they're mute. They don't speak. But we think, we think that there's a promise. If I give myself to this, if I sacrifice for this, whatever's not God, I'm going to get something from it. I'm going to get something valuable from it. And you get something from it, but it never delivers. But it always costs a lot more than you bargained for. It always costs a lot more than you bargained for. And they're reaping the consequences of the cost of their idolatry. And, and look at verse 15. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them as the Lord had warned. This should shock no one. They were told in Deuteronomy after they received, before they crossed over the Jordan. Deuteronomy, Moses said in chapter 28, listen, there are blessings. If you trust the Lord, you will be blessed. You're, you'll just be blessed. I will pour out my blessings on you as a nation. I will drive out your enemies before you. You will not have drought. You will not have pestilence. You will not have all of these things. You will be my people. I will be your God and I will care for you. But if you choose to worship the gods of your neighbors, I will be against you and you will be cursed and the people around you shall overpower you. And Joshua said the same thing. That's what, that's what Pastor Josh was talking about last week in the end of the book of Joshua. Choose this day. If you choose Baal, if you choose these other gods, the Lord your God whom you forsake will not forgive you and your enemies will rise up and they will conquer you. Oh, here we are. 
just as he had warned. This isn't a shock. It should not come as a shock. And what was the last sentence there? And they were in terrible distress, suffering the consequences of their own foolishness and their own idolatry. They didn't like the way it felt. Okay, now let's take a look at the solution, sort of. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Okay, full stop. Let's stop with verse 16. Who raised up the judges? God raised up the judges because they cried out to him. And what did the judges save them from? What's the text say? It's not a trick question. From their plunderers. So God saved them. God delivered them from the physical enemies who were bringing them pain, the identifiable source of pain. That's who God delivered them from, okay? But keep reading. Yet, yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. Now, fortunately, most of the children here are not paying attention. They're coloring right now, but that's an awkward verse for a family sit together. And I had some discussions with some people on staff. They said, Brooks, how are you going to handle that when you get to it? And I'm like, what do you mean? How am I going to handle it? So what do you, I'm going to read it. It's like, yeah, but there's going to be parents there that are not sure how to explain that. I said, okay, okay, I get it. Let me clean this up as clean as I possibly can. That word that I read that some of you are saying, I hope I don't say again because there's kids here, it means to be unfaithful. But that's not really what it means. I mean, it is, but that's a really, really sanitized version. So why would God allow that to be in the Bible? because he wants to punch us in the mouth. He wants us to be shocked by what he just said. Because it is serious. Very serious. And there's a reason that that word just comes out and slugs you in the gut. Be thankful that I'm not preaching for Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It's far worse. And they're talking about the same subject, the giving of oneself over to other gods, using language which is gross and explicit and offensive. So let's take a look here. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up these judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. I love this part. There's mercy right in the midst of all this pain. For the Lord was moved to pity by the, their groaning because of those who afflicted and pressed them. It's, it's like, you know, we got a lot of young parents here and 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 some of you have raised kids and, and there's always a moment where your child is old enough to get into some serious trouble when they're able to walk and they're able to understand you. And, and then there's the stove moment. We, we, our kids grew up and there's a wood stove in our home. 
and you get that thing hot and it's like, you don't want the kids to go near it. And so what do you do? The kids are going to go near it. It's a thing. They want to touch it. They want to touch everything. So you tell the kids, don't touch the stove. By the way, this didn't happen in our household, but it happens. Don't touch the stove, whether it's the kitchen stove or the wood stove. Don't touch the stove. Mommy said, don't touch the stove. And what does little junior do? Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch it. Now, none of you, please, I hope none of you, would look at your child with third degree burns on their hand and say, I told you not to touch it. That's not what you would do. You would run to your child, you would swoop the child up, and you would say, Mommy told you not to touch that, but you would immediately console them and comfort them. Why? Because you have pity for them. Even though their pain is self-induced, you still have pity for your child. And this is the way that God views his people. He knows that we got ourselves into the messes we get ourselves into, but that doesn't diminish his, his concern and his compassion for his people. Does that make sense? That's important that you don't miss that. He's still a God of mercy and God of compassion. I know some people are like, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's really mean. God of the New Testament, he's really nice. That's not how it works. God is immutable. He's the same yesterday as he is today, and he always will be that way. He has compassion on these people. That's why he keeps raising up judges for them. They don't listen to the judges. They just want deliverance from their enemies. Here's what they want. They want deliverance from the bad people. They want deliverance from the Canaanites. They want deliverance from the Moabites. They want deliverance from the Philistines. They want deliverance from the people who have iron chariots. You know what I see in the body of Christ? And I'm not talking about the downtown church, but maybe some of you, but collectively in the evangelical conservative church in America, I see a lot of groaning. I see a lot of whining. And I see a lot of crying out, Lord, deliver us from those people. You know, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Sodomites, the Edomites, and all the otherites, they have iron chariots. They have the media. They have control. We are the persecuted minority. So God, deliver us from them. Now, what, what, what is the, do you see the parallel? The people and judges viewed those people as the problem. And God raised up a judge. He raised up Ehud. He raised up Gideon. And he took care of those people, the physical enemies. But what didn't the judges take care of? The enemy within each and every heart. Because after each judge, they were worse off after the judge than they were before. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. More corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices of their stubborn ways. What you see in the book of Judges is the people get worse as they are rescued. They are worse at the end of Judges than they are at the beginning of Judges. Furthermore, the Judges get worse from the beginning to the end. At the beginning of the book of Judges, you can take a look at some of those Judges and you're like, you know what? 
I would want my son or my daughter to grow up to be like them. They have good moral character. They're good. They they love the Lord. No one wants their child to grow up to be like Samson at the end of the book of Judges. A man who has no self-control sexually and, and some of the other judges at the end of the time, they're nothing more than mafia thugs that God pours his spirit on so he can use them for a good purpose. You don't look at the people at the end of the book of Judges and say, yeah, I want, to, I want my kid to be like that when they grow up. They're, why? Because the judges never take care of the problem. The problem is not the Moabites. The problem is not the media. The problem is not the culture. The problem is the church. And here's the thing. We're going to see this later, but guys like Gideon, when God calls him and Gideon argues with him, he doesn't want to go. He doesn't believe he can. You know, you know what? The first thing Gideon does after he accepts the call, he chops down the altar to Baal in his father's backyard. How, pray tell, does a person who worships Yahweh get an altar to Baal in their backyard? How do they have an ash torth pole in their backyard? They are culturally blind to the fact that they are worshiping these idols. And within the body of Christ, there are so many parallels. We don't see ourselves as idolaters. We see those people as idolaters. And consequently, there is hardly any corporate repentance within the body of Christ. Only corporate whining about the degradation of the culture. And here's what, Here's what they didn't do that we have to do. Search our own hearts and come before the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I don't know what idols I'm worshiping, but I'm going to guess, venture to guess that there's some things that I have sworn allegiance to. There's some things which I ascribe with ultimate value that maybe I should not, and they are preventing you from being the Lord of my life. Practically speaking, They didn't do that. And that's why there's a, there's a, it's a depressing book. It's awful. It just gets worse. The next chapter is worse than the the chapter before it. The judges get progressively worse. And I, I think our society, I, I believe I've been around long enough to see the downward progression of our culture. And I've also been around long enough to see the downward progression of our leaders. Do you know that adultery was a a candidacy ender when I was in college? Gary Hart was the front runner in the Democratic Nomination in 88, he's running against Bush one. He was, he was running away with the primary until it came out that he was having an affair. He was done in 24 hours. Now it's a requirement to run. <laughs> Didn't matter which party. 
That's not an issue. What you do? Everyone has their own king and they do what's right in their own eyes. You just, you do you. They're good leaders. They'll get the job done. You see, it's not just the culture. It's also the quality of leaders. Some of you are like, Brooks, stop, please don't go any further. You're just, it is the role of the prophetic voice of the word of God to speak about the truth and the lies in a culture. I'm not running for office, but I am proclaiming the word of God and it's destroying the church. This idea that, that we just need a stronger leader. I'm not against strong leadership. Here's what I'm against. I'm against the complicity of the body of Christ refusing to analyze their own hearts and repent of their own idolatry. Because it doesn't matter who gets in office and leads this nation or leads the Israelites or drives out the Moabites. Because the Moabites are not the problem. The problem is the idolatrous hearts of the people in Israel. And that's the same problem why does the church have so little influence in our culture? Hmm? Why? It's because of the iron chariots of the culture? It's because the media is too powerful? Or the church is filled with idolaters and the church is anemic. The last time I read the gospels, Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against my church. Unless, of course, the church stops being the church. The gates of hell are not prevailing against the church in Iran right now. They're growing at a rate of 6%. Gates of hell are not prevailing against China right now. It's the fastest two nations where evangelism is taking hold. People are growing. The church in America, sinking. Is that because the culture is so strong? The enemies that, that oppose Christ are, are too powerful? Or is it because we just want strong leaders who are going to help our 401ks? Or do we want to be made holy and pure, wholly devoted to the Lord our God? That's the question. Sorry, I'm, I'm riffing a little bit right now and not paying attention to my notes. So whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices of their stubborn ways. So where's our hope? Well, I can tell you where it's not. It's not in the next election cycle. I think probably most of you, that's, you weren't, that wasn't your hope to begin with. And yes, it is depressing when you look at judges, but there is hope. The last verse is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, what we have right now is, is what's called postmodernism. Postmodernism, this is a very, very condensed expression here. It says that there's no real truth, and it says that knowledge is always made or invented and not discovered. See, modernism, I'm not talking about theism, but modernism there was, there, was a, there was a time in our society, in Western civilization, where you may not believe in God, but you believe that truth existed and was out there, just had to be discovered. See, that's what classic liberalism believes. Not, 
I'm not talking about political liberalism. Classic liberalism believes that scientific method, there's truth out there. You just have to discover it. You have to find it. You have to apply it. And we can make a better society. Now, granted, they, they forget that there's no God, but at least they believe that. Postmodernism says, oh, that's not true. Catch the iron in that statement. That's not true. There is no real truth. Truth is invented. Truth is a construct. You see, truth is something that the power elite tells the people what is real. So what needs to happen is those who aren't in power need to get in power so they can impose their truth structures on the culture. Does anybody see this happening in our world? This is how the world works. That's where the phrase, you do you. It's, it's not about truth. It's not about what is right, what is wrong. It's about what works. And so what, what happens is, is this. This is Pontius Pilate speaking to Jesus. So you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everybody on the side of truth listens to me listens to my voice. And Pilate says to him, what is truth? It's not a question. He's not inquiring as to the nature of truth. It's a statement. He's like, Jesus, seriously? You don't have any money? You don't have an army? You have no political power and you're going on and on about being a king? And that those who are on the side of truth listen to you? What does truth have to do with anything? What really matters is who has power. Who has power? And I think that's where our culture is today. However, in those days, Israel had no king. What does that imply? It implies that they needed one. And in the end of the book of Judges, it goes right on to 1 Samuel. And Samuel, the people come to him and they say, give us a king just like our, our neighbors. Samuel's ticked and he goes to the Lord and he complains and God says, Samuel, relax. It doesn't say Samuel, relax, but he says, just chill, Samuel. Here's the deal. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They already have a king. I'm their king and they reject me. So give them what they want. And so they get what they want. And they get Saul and he's terrible. And they get David and he's really pretty good, except for the adultery murder thing and, and national scandal. And then there's Solomon, who's really wise, but he has a thousand wives and builds, and they're all, most of them are foreign and for political purposes, and he builds for, altars to their foreign gods all over the nation. <laughs> and then it's a disaster. So it turns out a king is not a solution, but the king is the solution. Jesus said, yeah, you're right, I am a king. It's for this very person, that purpose that I came into this world, to bear witness to the truth and all who are on the side of truth. Listen to me. Our problem in our culture, and honestly, I'm gonna say our problem in the church is that while we espouse that we have a king, we don't really live as if the king is the king. Just like the judges, I think if every American Christian were to, to go before the Lord and say, okay, Lord, search my heart. Show me what my idols are. If you let the Lord search your heart, he's going to painfully make those aware to you. I got an email 30 minutes after I was done preaching from a guy. He said, thank you for the sermon this morning. I gotta be honest with you. Everything you said resonated with me and I am a full-blown idolater. Money, power, and sex. That's a start. The judges didn't, or not the judges, the people of Israel didn't do that. They didn't take that step of, you know what? The problem is Baal. 
The problem is Ashtoreth. That's where we need to start. We need to start with our house, not the Moabites, not the Ammonites. But here's the thing. If you allow the Holy Spirit to search you, it's going to be painful and, and you're going to find, you're going to find that it's going to cause, it's going to cause you to, to squirm a little bit. You're going to think, how could this God love me? I'm so filthy. I'm so dirty. The late Tim Keller, this is a beautiful Tim Kellerism. Because the gospel is true and our king is not just a king, but he became a baby and he lived a sinless life. And he took my sin and he took your sin upon himself. And he conquered sin and death and he rose again. And he gives himself freely so that you and I might have a pardon from sin possess and have the Holy Spirit and possess his righteousness. Because of that, here's the Tim Kellerism. You're far, far worse than you ever thought you were. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. You're more loved than you ever hoped to be. So the deeper you discover about your idols that you didn't know you have, it's like, oh gosh, that's so ugly. And then you recognize that that God who raised up the judges for these people, because he pitied them, that's how he feels about me and you at our worst. But he doesn't want to drive out the enemies in our culture. He wants to drive out the idolatry in our hearts so that he can pour out a fresh influx of the Holy Spirit and empowerment to live in righteousness and real kingdom power. And that promise is for you, it's for me. That's why John said, whoever says they're without sin deceives himself and the truth of God is not in them. But if you confess your sins, if you confess your sins, he is faithful, he is righteous and he will purify you from all unrighteousness. That is a beautiful statement. What John is doing, what the New Testament is doing, what Jesus is doing, he's, he's giving us a means to deal with the very painful reality that we, we are idolaters still. So God wants to start with each one of us. So as we close in prayer, let's commit ourselves to him. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son Thank you that he died on the cross. Thank you that he lived a sinless and a perfect life. Jesus, we pray that you would have your way in our hearts. We do repent of our idols. Lord, truthfully, we're not even aware of what most of them are. Spirit, would you search us? Show us, show us what we give ourselves to, what we ascribe is ultimately worthy. Some of those things are gonna be good things that we make too much of. Some of those things might be bad things that we shouldn't have anything to do with, Lord, but I pray that you would reveal them. And Lord, don't just sit there, leave us in, in the sense of our conviction and our sin. But remind us, Lord, that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who is the propitiation for our sins. Lord, remind us that you are a high priest constantly interceding for us. Lord, we thank you. Help us live for you because you died for us. Lord, you are our one true king and we worship you. Amen.